0: Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Prime podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Ted Nyman. He's a board-certified family medicine physician in Seattle. His focus is on the practical implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization. He's the author of The P.E. Diet, which I highly recommend. Ted is obsessed with making diet and strength training as accessible as possible. So without further ado, please welcome Ted Nyman to the podcast. All right, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it.
0: So seeing as how your medical practice is moving to, I think, almost 50% virtual care during this quarantine, can you talk to me about the art of the virtual visit and how to do it properly to mimic the in-person connection as close as possible?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so it's a little weird, and to be honest, I'm new to this virtual stuff, so I'm no expert in it at all, Mm -hmm. (laughs) believe me. But the weirdest part is that, you know, it's so weird doing it virtually because what people really need from you is to know that you heard them and that you paid attention to them and that you care about what they're saying, that it's important to you. And literally, the only way to do that in a virtual call is to not look at the person at all, but to just stare intently into your camera, Mm -hmm. which is just exactly non-intuitive. So I find myself just not even really looking at people at all during these calls, but just staring into my camera and trying to convince people I'm actually listening to what they're saying. And, and, uh, And that's really, really hard to do. So I haven't really perfected it yet.
0: And I came across your work on Twitter. I've watched a lot of your videos and you have this straightforward approach where you make the complex very simple. So it's awesome that I have you on. I've heard you say that you are sick and tired of religion, running nutrition. And I'm with you on this. It's like eating isn't a cult activity. It's more of a tribal activity. It should be a celebration that we need to do in a species appropriate way. And you've said obesity isn't complicated. The exact cause is the refinement of carbs and fats, creating dietary energy that has been separated from satiety. And this worsens when we combine high energy density, refined carbs and fats together, creating negative satiety. It's still ancestrally aligned, right? It just, you're saying the paleo diet, a more accurate description would be one that's higher in protein.
1: (laughs) right 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 so i I love the paleo framework i like to look at everything through an evolutionary lens i'm really coming at the diet thing from a paleo direction but what i don't like is the religiosity of paleo um because i feel like there's you know it it doesn't have to i mean like dairy for example if you if you are eating fermented dairy where the you know lactose is gone or basically low fat fermented dairy you just get this spectacular protein to energy ratio and you get this spectacular nutritional quality and uh the very highest quality protein you can find and so like why wouldn't some people be able to eat that you know so that's where i'm like separating the religion of paleo from just the protein to energy concepts you know
0: that's what this book is doing. It's transcending all of the diet cams.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right. I'm just breaking down, you know, what is eating? Exactly. What is eating? Well, you know, animals have to ingest other living organisms constantly to survive. And we're trying to either get energy in the form of carbs and fats, or we're trying to get, Uh, nutrients, which is basically protein and minerals uh, that plants draw up from soil in the form of nitrogen and other minerals. So if you kind of balance out your needs for protein and minerals versus your need for non-protein energy, which would be carbs and fats, uh, you get obesity when you separate the energy from the nutrition and the satiety, when you strip out the carbs and the fats from the protein and the minerals. And then you can fight that by just going out of your way to target the protein and mineral side of the equation with the least energy ingestion being carbs and fats. And, and so once you kind of look at it from that angle, you can, you can see that every diet camp is right about something. Like the, the low-fat people are right about something. The low-carb people are right about something. The paleo people are right about a lot of things. And you can just pick and choose from all these religions and come up with something that's really optimal without having to be, you know, religious about it.
0: Mm -hmm. And you use the example of type two diabetics, overeating carbs. They'll get the acute increase in blood glucose, which is obvious on their monitor. And the same goes for overeating fat. And we don't see the spike on our, on our CGMs, but the next morning our blood glucose is significantly higher.
1: Right, exactly. So, you know, the whole keto sphere is like, well, you can eat all the fat you want, just don't eat any carbs, because look what it did to my continuous glucose monitor. But, you know, if you do a thought experiment where you eat like an infinite quantity of butter or something... What happens is your blood sugar does not go up acutely, but the next day, your blood sugar is higher because you've expanded your fat mass and you're slightly more insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. And in clinical practice, that's exactly what happens to type 2 diabetics. If they eat a whole bunch of fat, they wake up the next morning and their blood sugar is higher. And that's just slight worsening of insulin resistance. So yeah, it, again, it, it's like making it all about low carb versus low fat is really Kind of a distraction because both sides are totally correct and you really have to marry the two together and that's kind of where i'm coming at it from
0: right so that energy toxicity will be the same our a1c will be the same and your body fat percentage will be the same but do you see a beauty at all in transitioning from a carb burner to a fat burner i mean do you do you believe in the whole idea of fat adaptation
1: oh yes absolutely like like i'm a huge believer in fat adaptation That's why I came at all this from a low carb direction. Because your average American is eating 300 grams of carbs a day, and they're eating carbs every two hours, eight times a day for a 16 hour eating window. And one of the reasons they're doing this is because when you're eating that much carbohydrate, you can kind of feel your blood sugar going down and you start getting hungry again. And that's why everyone's just snacking on carbs all day long. And every single low carb person out there will describe to you this sort of vague fat adaptation thing where they just didn't have to eat as often and they could just go longer periods of time without eating and they could just survive better without eating. And that's what happens when you lose this glucose dependence and you become more fat adapted. In my opinion, that's the the number one benefit of low carb diets but we haven't really elucidated exactly what's happening mechanistically so people who are anti low carb just kind of make fun of that or blow it off because it's all about calories because they don't really we haven't really properly identified exactly what this fat adaptation is fully yeah. so it's it's just a made, it's almost a made up thing you know okay. what i mean it's like uh people don't buy into it, but it's real.
0: I'm curious because I bought into the wisdom that running off of fatty acids and ketones is a cleaner burning fuel.
1: In the low carb world, we we say things like this. We're like, okay, you get less reactive oxygen species and it's cleaner burning. And although, to be honest, if someone's very lean and very insulin sensitive and has plenty of room for fat storage and plenty of room for glycogen storage, and they're metabolically flexible. We have not. There's really no evidence in the medical literature to show that in that setting, fat is "quote unquote" cleaner burning than carbohydrate. Um, And in fact, if you really look at insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, all of these conditions are physically having too much fat inside your body. Your the energy toxicity of type two diabetes is mostly too much fat in your body. The, the amount of glucose in your body is still tiny. You know, Instead of five grams of glucose in your bloodstream, you've got six grams of glucose in your bloodstream, and you still have the same tiny 100 grams in your liver and maybe 300 grams in your muscles. There is not that much glucose in the body of a type 2 diabetic. What they've got is just way too much fat. They can no longer fit fat in their subcutaneous fat. It's spilled over into their visceral fat. That's spilled over into ectopic fat. Now their fat has fat. The fat is everywhere. The cells get um, intracellular fat. You get all these ceramides and all this um, fat toxicity. And what we're not looking at in the bloodstream is the free fatty acids in a type 2 diabetic. They're off the charts. So like triglycerides are way up free fatty acids are way up. And if we could measure fat in the blood the same way we could measure glucose, we would consider type two diabetes to be a disorder of too much fat in your body. So I have to push back against, you know, people who say that, you know, fat is a clean, cleaner burning than carbs. Because if you're metabolically sensitive, we have no evidence that there's really any difference. And if you're diabetic, type 2 diabetic, or you have insulin resistance, the basic problem is you literally have too much fat in your body. Now, uh, of course, fat and carbohydrate contributes to making that worse identically. Mm -hmm. And I think personally that carbohydrate leads to more downstream hunger because you have this falling glucose hunger phenomenon where people are glucose dependent and can't live without their carbs for very long. Um, So I think it's it's highly damaging for these people to eat carbs because the high blood sugar is is very damaging and uh, and glycotoxic and you have so much glycation damage. So you really don't want to eat carbs. But I'm not going to say that fat is, you know, magically better in a metabolically sensitive person.
0: Uh-huh. The reason why I ask is because I think it's crucial for firefighters with inconsistent meal times and missed meals to be fat adapted so they don't get hangry and they can still um, you know, do the job without being distracted.
1: Absolutely. Exactly. I totally agree with that. I love that. I think that's the main benefit of being on a low carb diet is because you function really well in an environment where there's no exogenous energy coming in Mm -hmm. you can function at a high level indefinitely without having to stop and drink some gatorade or something like that so it's extremely beneficial it's almost like a superpower and i think that's that's the the main benefit of low carb is this fat adaptation thing but like i said we haven't really we haven't really spelled out exactly what that is mechanistically which makes like so low carb still kind of a unfortunately, in higher nutrition circles, which is sad.
0: Mm -hmm. So humans have a very high protein satiety drive and we require minerals for satiety. So we will eat and eat until we get enough protein and minerals. And if you're eating a food that is very high in energy, but low in protein and minerals, you will have to overeat energy to get enough protein and your body stores that excess energy as fat.
1: Right, right. Yes. This is a protein leverage hypothesis. Basically, humans will eat and eat and eat until they get enough protein and only then will they stop eating. And we, we have studies showing that the amount of energy that humans eat will go up and down by a factor of 10 based on the protein percentage of that food. So, you know, if you're eating French fries, which are 6% protein, how much carbon fat do you have to overeat to get adequate protein? from French fries, it's a hell of a lot. And you're just gonna basically gain a billion pounds versus if you eat you know, uh, chicken breast and salad, you, you eat one and a half of those chicken breasts and you're just done eating for a really long time. You just, you're, you just have this incredibly higher satiety from these higher protein foods. And that's, that's the protein leverage hypothesis, which I really think explains about half of the obesity epidemic.
0: Mm -hmm. So what you eat determines how much you eat,
1: right? Yeah. So I like that. There's two basic diet philosophies on the planet. There's how much to eat and there's what to eat. And I'm just firmly squarely on the side of what to eat. Uh, Because it's, if you really try to just count your calories, but you're eating something crappy, like pop tarts or something, you're just going to be hungry and that will always fail like everyone will eventually eat to satiety Mm -hmm. and how many calories you ate to get that satiety exclusively depends on what you're eating so even trying to pay attention to how much is almost a joke if you really look at the big picture
0: So it's not about low-carb versus low-fat. I guess the correct way with where the PE ratio comes in is the smartest approach is actually a combination of the two. Avoid both refined added carbs and fats, and you will achieve the highest protein-to-energy ratio.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's really kind of just low-carb and low-fat smooshed together. (laughs) That's that's basically what the approach is. But uh, I think what I've done for for that concept is just explain exactly how that works and why that works. And that's what the book is about. It's really just kind of spelling it all out for people.
0: Mm -hmm. This is a strategy employed by many bodybuilders with great success.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, honestly, the PE diet is exactly what every bodybuilder and bikini model and fitness competitor and aesthetic athlete is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, They just don't necessarily look at it that way. But, uh, I think it's a useful metric. It's a useful way to look at diet in general,
0: right? But Ted, I don't want to get too shredded on this diet.
1: Also no one's getting too shredded because by the time you drop below the body fat, your body wants you to be at, you're just going to be so freaking hungry that it's really quite a slog to lose further body fat. So what this does for you is allow you to effortlessly cruise right down to the body fat percent that your body wants you to be at and stay there indefinitely. You have to pretty, you have to lean into it pretty hard to get quote unquote, too lean. I mean, you're, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be, it's, it's, it gets ugly as you get really thin.
0: Right. And do we need to calculate this or can we just prioritize lean cuts of meat, you know, fish, fowl, eggs, and the plain Greek yogurt?
1: Right, right. So the whole point of this book, I'm not suggesting that anybody track anything. I don't want people to track everything they eat or track all their macros or track all their calories. The only point of it is food selection and food choice. So my take on it is that obesity is 100% about food choice. And it, you know, if you don't believe me, just put a bunch of obese people on an island where all they have to eat is like, fish and salad or something. Mm. You know what I mean? It's really just comes down to food choice and food selection. And the PE concept is just a way to look at foods and then help you decide like, okay, which food is literally going to make me fatter because it has low satiety per calorie and which food is going to make me leaner because it has high satiety per calorie. And you're literally just choosing. And what you're doing is you're making little, food substitutions, little food swaps, like, okay, instead of bacon, I'm going to eat turkey bacon, or instead of ribeye, I might eat sirloin, or instead of, you know, breakfast cereal, I might eat oatmeal, Are you just going for something with a higher protein to energy ratio.
0: And I think this is why people tend to join, you know, either the carnivore or the vegan camp is because they need to be prescribed one or the other. They have a, they have a hard time riding the fence. And you often say nothing in life is optimal at zero. So you don't need to go zero carb.
1: Right. Like it's, I honestly, I think it's completely ridiculous to go all the way to zero on anything. Zero plants, zero animals, zero carbs, zero fat. We're always trying to be as extreme as possible and that's entertaining, but it's not really that helpful for the average person. So I really don't like this extremism. The answer to everything is always somewhere in between.
0: And I think this natural drive for protein is sort of the proof we need that protein won't destroy our kidneys and bones and all the other myths that we hear so often. Are there any real concerns or demographics that need to worry about over-consuming protein?
1: Uh, not really, no. So like historically, we thought that too much protein damaged your kidneys or your liver or your bones, and all of this has been disproven. And in fact, even a lot of like, you know, we we used to recommend protein restriction for people with uh, suboptimal kidney function. And we now we've found out that most of that is entirely mythical So all of the myths about protein are kind of ridiculous. There, there are very few people who have to worry about eating quote unquote, too much protein. Um, There are some very rare genetic conditions where you have trouble deaminating, you know, an infinite amount of protein and your ammonia levels rise. Uh, So theoretically, there's someone out there who can't eat, you know, 80% of their calories from protein but your average person is not going to have any difficulty with um, you know, even doubling or tripling the protein percentage of their diet.
0: Okay. And then I don't necessarily want to go down the bioavailability and quality rabbit hole, but I'm curious how your vegan patients meet their protein needs.
1: Oh, well it's tough. Okay. I mean, so like everybody's eating enough protein to be alive. Uh-huh. But uh if you really, really undereat protein, like if you get your protein really low, you do actually get quite thin, quite lean. Protein's a U-shaped curve, where if your protein su- percent is super high, like creating a 50% protein diet like a bodybuilder, you get really lean. Um, but also if you get your protein way down to about 5%. Uh, which is the protein percentage you get if you just were a fruititarian, if you just ate like, you know, 30 bananas a day, like, you know, freely the banana chick or whatever. If you're just like a, a vegan YouTuber and you eat nothing but fruit and your protein goes all the way down to 5%, you do get extremely light and lean and thin. But the problem is... You lose so much lean mass. I mean, you you will definitely get sarcopenia, osteopenia. You know, low muscle, low bone. Um, It also shrinks the weight of all your organs, including your heart and your brain. And then you don't have a lot of reserves, and your your um, morbidity and mortality goes way up. And uh, since we know that uh, how long you're going to live is pretty directly related to how strong you are it's just not a good look. You know what I mean? And so I have a lot of vegan patients who, in my opinion, have really suboptimal body composition. They, um, you know, they're under muscle, they have low bone density, and then they start getting problems like uh, hair loss. You know, if you don't have enough protein, it's a triage in your body. If you don't have enough protein to barely get by, you're definitely not going to grow hair or fingernails. Like that's That's a luxury that you can no longer afford. So there's a lot less tissue turnover and growth, which um, bad stuff starts happening. You can't heal anything. So I'll see someone on this low protein thing who gets like like a tendonitis or a plantar fasciitis or something that you would heal up in a week or two. And they'll have that for a year because they just don't have the headroom to repair this stuff they they start getting like a lot of you know dental problems and things don't get repaired the way they should be it's really not optimal
0: but they're making the necessary sacrifices to save the planet
1: oh yeah (laughs) right except so the, the whole role of the planet is leave the soil in better condition than you found it and the only way to do that is regenerative agriculture. Right. And, you know, like ruminants are phenomenal. Like ruminants, they're just powered by sunlight and water and they're eating cellulose, which cover the whole planet that nothing else can use. And they're literally growing topsoil. They're better than carbon neutral. They're growing topsoil. If everyone just ate a bunch of cows, like we would literally leave the soil better than we found it. And it would be amazing. And instead what we've got is monocropping a bunch of freaking soybeans and it's just destroying, um, the environment. And I, yeah. Okay. Sorry. You, you triggered me real bad.
0: Um, but I, I just didn't know if maybe you were, you were having them add in extra protein supplements or oh, yeah.
1: basically I beg them. I'm like, what is the one food that's high protein that you like or are willing to eat and just eat the crap out of that. Like just eat that until you just, you have to eat you know, your body weight in that one thing before you can eat anything else. That just has to be your priority. And I do, to be totally fair, I have vegans who are extremely healthy and they're, they're doing it right, but they're basically using protein supplements. They're using um, pea protein, rice protein, ham protein, soy protein. They're usually using more than one. They're a combination of protein supplements. They're also, of course, taking vitamin supplements, And then they're doing fine. And so you can do it, but it's really expensive and it's really highly processed and it's not easy and it takes a lot of planning. And you can't just kill an animal and eat the whole thing. And it's so much more difficult and it's so much more energy intensive. If you look at the amount of energy it took to create that diet, uh, and and by energy, I mean just like how many fossil fuels and based energy you have to burn through Mm -hmm. to produce the food they're eating there it's it's infinitely higher than a cow raised on ambient sunlight and rainfall so Uh it's just um it just blows my mind how bad it is and like why why everyone can't just do a back of the napkin calculation and instantly see how stupid that is blows my mind
0: well said ted when patients walk into your office, you check their fasting triglycerides, maybe their triglyceride to HCl ratio, their waist circumference, and their blood pressure. Can these simple tests really clue you in on their overall well-being and metabolic function?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I love triglycerides. This is a really, really good metric. And uh fasting triglycerides, if you're, you know, if you're thin, if you're metabolically sensitive, if you have plenty of room to store fat. Your triglycerides are going to be nice and low. It's beautiful, but if you're over fat and if you're approaching some sort of metabolic syndrome or hyperinsulinemia or uh, that sort of thing, you'll have high triglycerides way before your blood sugar is too high. So it's a very early indicator that something's um, not not great. And so you really want your fasting triglycerides to be under a hundred. Uh, if you you know twelve hour fast, water only. Uh, no calories, no coffee, you want those triglycerides to be, you know, ideally under 100, or ideally under 70, the lower the better, to be perfectly honest, and uh, it's a great thing to be tracking, so yes, I like triglycerides, I like triglyceride to HDL ratio, Uh, I like fasting glucose, but that's the very last thing to be elevated in people with metabolic syndrome.
0: Mm -hmm. What about LPIR scores? Are those important? Oh yeah,
1: those are useful, but they're, it's so expensive. You know what I mean? A lot of people's insurance won't pay for it. So you can honestly get the same, you can extrapolate the same information from just a low budget, cheap ass lipid panel, really. Um, so I do like LPIR and it's very, it's, I, but it's basically a fancier version of a triglyceride to HDL ratio. And so I'm trying to do this as cheaply as possible, you know, for the average person. And so I think you don't really have to do advanced lipid testing to get the same information. Like, honestly, I would trade your whole LPIR panel for a waist to height, Measurement. You measure your waist at the belly button, abdomen fully relaxed, divided by your height. That should be less than 0.5. If it's higher than that, you're over fat and you're going to have some degree of insulin resistance. And I would take that measurement in a lot of people over their LPIR score. Now, if you're super, super skinny, but you have lipodystrophy or something, okay, then I do need some blood tests to figure this out. But even then, just a low budget, off the shelf lipid panel is probably adequate
0: and you do see that maybe you have some weight to lose, pick up the PE diet and start focusing on getting the quality protein first.
1: It's really diet and exercise and it really comes down to food choice. Like what are you eating? Exactly how many, What what is your satiety per calorie going to be? If it's a super high protein food, it's gonna be super high. If it's nothing but carbs and fats together like a donut, it's gonna be super low or negative.
0: And you've said diet alone will get you halfway to the finish line, but the other half is going to require exercise. So let's move on to the exercise portion of this book, which is just as straightforward. You're obsessed with making strength training as accessible as possible. All we need for the optimum adaptive response to exercise is to generate maximum tension in your muscles for the maximum time possible. Can you talk more on this?
1: Yeah, right. So, so your muscles only know one thing and that is how much tension is on them that's it that's that's all they're doing is applying tension for a certain amount of time and what you have to do is communicate to your muscles that they're not adequate the way they are mm-hmm. you have to pr- apply the stimulus and that's the only way you'll grow more muscle so what you want to do is just slowly and deliberately place the very highest amount of tension you can in your muscles for as long as you can and get this maximum time under tension. And in the book, I just kind of broke it down to the three basic movement patterns. There's push, pull, and squat, or legs. And so you do movements in each of these, um, well, you do resist exercises in each of these movement patterns, Designed to just apply the maximum tension in the muscles of, like, for example, your pushing chain. You would do a push up or a set of push ups all the way to failure and beyond. You're trying to apply the highest tension in your muscles for as long as you can. And so you would do the hardest variation of a push up that you can for as long as you can. And that's really all you need to build muscle. It's just basically time under tension progressively harder going to failure mm-hmm. and then the amount of volume we need is tiny so there, there's three variables you know there's frequency of exercise there's intensity of exercise and then there's duration of exercise or volume and what i've what i'm saying in the book is the very 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 most important is intensity mm-hmm. that's the most important like if you had a pink weight a little one pound weight and you did you know a thousand curls a day, just spread out, you know, one every 30 seconds, you're never going to build any muscle at all. And so it's the intensity that has to come first. And then I like frequency second. So I, I recommend, you know, pretty like, you know, maybe a, a single set daily or something like that. And then as a result of it, maxing out intensity and frequency, the amount of time you have to spend can be really, really small. Like, right. The volume and duration is small. You know, I basically never work out more than about 15 minutes a day. And in the book, we, you know, we have a seven minute workout. It's insanely high intensity. Like it's just soul crushing for that period of time. And it's, you know, designed to be daily or every other day, but you don't have to spend a lot of
0: time on it. Yeah. And I can hear society's voice in my head now saying, well, this works efficiently doing upper body stuff, but you can't build leg muscle just using body weight.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, so that sounds great until you actually try to do, you know, 10 perfect form pistol squats, you know, single leg squats. And if you, you know, if you can get to the point where you can do that, your leg strength is ridiculous. Like you can, you can maximally develop your legs with these single leg body weight squats, which are just punishing. I mean, most people can't even do one. Right.
0: I like to tell firefighters to do what I call return reps. Whenever they return to the firehouse from a run, I'll have them do a set of pull-ups or push-ups or dips or something like that. Is this similar to your nano workouts?
1: Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Like, so I love that. It's like a, you know, anywhere you can fit it in, you just do a single set failure of a push or a pull or a legs. Um, you know, I have, uh, you know, pull up bars like all over my house. So mm-hmm. if I just get a second, I can do a set of pull-ups or something like that. So yeah, I love this kind of interstitial nano workouts where you might just be spending 2 minutes. I mean it really only takes 40 seconds to do a set of push-ups or pull-ups to failure and you can sprinkle those in anywhere. So I absolutely love that. That's brilliant.
0: Cool. And yeah, you say the only way to improve our body composition with exercise is to hit maximum effort to failure. So if you're going to do those push-ups, we can do what you call the triple failure.
1: Right, right, right. This is basically you know, the concentric is the hard part of the pushup where you're pushing yourself off the ground. And then the eccentric is the easier part where you're lowering yourself back down. The goal here is to go all the way to concentric failure where you literally can't push yourself up another inch. But then you just hold yourself there isometrically for as long as you can until you feel like you're going to die. And even then you let yourself down as slowly as possible, like the final eccentric before you collapse on the ground or whatever. And so you can hit this failure really hard and literally just do one set of pushups a day, which might take you under a minute and still make progress. Yeah. You'll still build muscle. You'll still get stronger. And it's because the intensity is so high.
0: Mm -hmm. So by doing this, we'll build this type two muscle we will become more insulin sensitive and constantly burn fat 24 seven.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Your whole your whole goal from uh, health and metabolism point of view is to get the highest lean mass at the lowest fat mass. Mm-hmm. That's where you get the very lowest insulin and blood sugar and triglycerides and A1C and all of these numbers. And so you want the highest lean mass at the lowest fat mass. So in order to get the highest lean mass, you have to do this extremely high intensity resistance exercise You know, to get the maximal stimulus to grow muscle. You also have to eat a A lot of protein and then to have the lowest fat mass you basically prioritize protein and minerals way higher than fat or carbohydrates you're trying to eat the highest protein to energy diet you can or the highest satiety to energy diet and uh, so it really just comes down to basically high intensity uh, resistance exercise and prioritizing protein over energy
0: And do you have any thoughts on doing steady state cardio?
1: Well, actually I love cardio and I think everybody should be doing both resistance and cardio exercise, but I take the same approach with uh, cardio that I do with resistance in that you can always trade intensity for time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we have studies showing that people who you know get on a spin bike and pedal for their lives for 1 minute at the highest intensity they can possibly crank out uh, have better metabolic adaptations than people who do like a moderate intensity spinning for an hour so you you can always trade intensity for duration and so you really want if you don't have a lot of time to just jog or do some sort of zone to steady state cardio you can always crank the intensity up. And that's why I love anything where you can really pump out a ton of wattage. I love, uh, you know, rowing machines where you do a 500 meter sprint and you can mm. just pump out wattage in you know a minute and a half. Or I love running uphill or running upstairs. You can generate this huge wattage and this huge energy output in like no time at all. And what happens when you... Do the cardio of this super high intensity is that again, you're sending this signal to your body that it's not good enough the way it is. You're creating a transient energy crisis in your body, and your body will literally make new mitochondria. You know, uh, a few days after a bout of cardio like this, you literally have more mitochondria throughout mm-hmm. your body. And then you actually get better at. You deplete glycogen, you get better at burning carbs, you get better at burning fat, and you have more mitochondria, you, uh, you're better at uh, power generation, which is what you really, really want. And so I always like trading intensity for duration when it comes to cardio. Now, there's nothing wrong with like, you know, chronic steady state cardio. Uh, I just think it's the return on investment is lower.
0: And you're not concerned with overtraining because most of your workouts are sub 15 minutes and you're doing the acute stuff, not the chronic stuff.
1: Right. Like, like the people I see who are, are overtrained, they're typically doing, you know, like Iron Man training and they're, you know, spending hours doing cardio. And I do think you can get overtrained doing that, but nobody's being, nobody's getting quote unquote overtrained doing this kind of stuff, even every day
0: think this is a perfect segue into talking about ultimate frisbee and the importance of play which doesn't get enough attention (laughs) it seems like a great way to mitigate stress and also build social bonds and also do a game that has you doing some steady state cardio but also some all-out sprints
1: right right like okay so this is you know this is like my own personal bias here i'm addicted to ultimate frisbee and i love ultimate frisbee and So I think it's awesome, but I understand that not everybody might be as excited about it (laughs) as I am. But yeah, like having a sport where that forces you to do sprint intervals, basically, which is what ultimate is, I think is helpful because it's hard for me to motivate myself to just run for no reason. But for some reason, if I'm chasing like a $5 plastic circle, it's all of a sudden tons of fun.
0: Mm -hmm. And in the name of longevity, nobody's out there tackling you or talking shit the whole time.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah. It's actually a really nice, uh, it's a nice environment. Like the, the sport of ultimate, I I really think is amazing just because it's, you know, the spirit of the game and it's all self-reft and self-policed and everybody has a really good attitude. And so it's pretty amazing. Plus I like the fact that it's, so minimalistic. I mean, really all you need is a Frisbee and maybe some plastic cones if you're getting fancy.
0: You said the spirit of the game. That's an actual mission statement, right? That stresses sportsmanship and honor and frowns upon the fouling and taunting.
1: Right, right. The whole point of Ultimate is that uh, it's, it's called the spirit of the game. You call all your own fouls and you always call yourself out if you're out or if you foul someone. So you have to it, it, it's built upon this code of like behavior where you're the whole point is to be as sportsmanlike as you possibly can and uh, you know the very few sports are like that and it's it's self ref even pretty high up in in the levels of play you know what i mean <clears throat> which is amazing and not a lot of sports are like that
0: right is that what you're looking forward to doing most post-quarantine
1: Yes, absolutely. Like I, we, There's a game we play here religiously. Seattle's a big ultimate place, so it's a big deal here, and, and we have not been playing during this lockdown, which kind of sucks.
0: Mm-hmm. To wrap that up, what kind of changes do you think we would see in society if every MD, every nutritionist, every health coach was equipped with the PE diet book?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, I think that would just be a game changer. Uh, I mean, uh, you'd, you'd see a lot less, well, first of all, you'd see a lot less bickering between the plant people and the animal people and the low carb people and the low fat people. Everyone would realize, hey, we're on the same team. We're all we're all fighting basically the combination of refined carbs and refined fats. And I think once everybody got pulling in the same direction, and we're on the same team, you really see You really see a lot of progress and so many people like the only diet thing they're told is just eat less. So they're like buying smaller plates and trying to watch their portion sizes or whatever. Trying to eat less of the same diet that made you fat in the first place is just this Sisyphean nightmare. Like you literally cannot do it. You could maybe white knuckle it for a couple of days and lose a few pounds and then you'll just immediately go back to where you were. So you have to choose different foods, and this if you just know what direction to put your effort in, I mean, people really make progress. You know, some people are really trying hard. They're really trying to track their calories. They're really trying to exercise. But if they knew exactly what direction to focus their efforts, they would um, they would make some big changes. I see it every day at work.
0: Oh yeah, everyone needs to read this book. So switching gears, there are just a few questions before we wrap up. If you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now?
1: Oh wow, the the book I just uh, just read was uh, Eat Like the Animals by Drs. Robinheimer and Simpson. They are the prof- Australian professors who came up with the protein leverage hypothesis, and they wrote this very interesting book about. Uh, They are basically doing zoology and they've followed all these animals around and they've figured out what controls what foods they eat and how, how ridiculously important protein leverage is in the whole animal kingdom. And it's just a really fascinating read.
0: I'll have to check that out. Thanks for that recommendation. All right, Ted, aka Mr. Baseman, what would we find in your Spotify search history?
1: Oh gosh! okay, <laughs> I'm embarrassing right? like so I'm a bassist uh and i've uh, you know played a million gigs for like a dance band, but uh because i uh mostly play just poppy dance music for um venues up here in Seattle, you would find like some super embarrassing, just crappy pop in there, like you'd find k pop and you would find just some cheesy disposable <laughs> top 40 pop garbage. I, I apologize, but yeah, that's what I spend a lot of time listening to because the more catchy and hyper-modern and danceable it is, the more um, the more it sells if you're in a, a dance cover band.
0: I've watched a few of the Rhythm Nation's covers of Aretha Franklin and Billie Jean. You guys are really good.
1: Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm basically retired now. From that band because they're way too busy (laughs) Uh so i'm just like a backup or a sub at this point i just couldn't i couldn't do you know 80 gigs a year or whatever
0: Uh uh-huh all right Ted. So last question if you could have a drink with anyone in history who would you choose and why
1: oh man okay so this is so lame and i'm breaking the rules of your question here but i i would want to go into the future and have a drink with someone from the future you know what i mean like, to mm-hmm. honestly, the past to me is a little bit boring. I want to talk to, uh, you know, the first woman to walk on Mars or the genius who invents cold fusion in the year 2500 or one of my great, 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 great grandkids or something like that. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm wanting to have coffee with one of these people. Um from the future. I I just think that would be more interesting. And I apologize if that's not really answering the question.
0: No, that's a great answer, Ted. Awesome. Well, this was a really fun conversation. Your book's available online and on Kindle now. And I believe you found a publisher for the printed version and that will be out shortly.
1: Oh yeah. Well, we're just self-publishing it, but uh, you'll be able to find either the digital version or the hardcover book at thepediet.com.
0: Awesome. You're on social at Ted Nyman and your website is burn fat, not sugar. Where else should people go to connect with you?
1: Uh yeah. I mean, I'm on uh, Twitter and it's probably the best place. Uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook, that kind of thing.
0: All right, Ted. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. This was a lot of fun.
1: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.